on me. All right, we're going to get started early. We're not going to get started in 30 seconds. We're doing 25 this morning. Um, listen, uh, I wanted to start this morning off um, a little bit different than we normally do, but uh, many of you, I'm sure, heard the news uh, of what happened in, in Connecticut this week, and probably like uh, like the rest of the nation, our hearts are just heavy for that. And um, I just thought as a, as a church family in solidarity with those who are there that we could just open up the service just with some, uh, with some quiet and just some silent prayer right now in praying for um, what God is doing there. We believe firmly that God's on the throne and is sovereign in this situation, is not surprised by it. Uh, but we also know that there's a lot of comfort and healing and uh, courage for Christians who are there. Uh, so let's just start our service with silence right now, praying for them, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll do some singing and, and join in, in in just a moment. Let's just sing about the presence of the Lord right now together. All right. Well, listen, as many of you know, some of you are wondering where some of your friends are. I'll tell you, they're in second service. Uh, some of you don't know this, but in September, we started uh, with two services. Uh, so you are the early service at 9 a.m. There's another one that starts at 1045. And um, we've just been so thrilled. God has really been faithful for, uh, for several months, really leading up to it in several weeks. We've just been praying and talking about the metaphor uh, even of, um, you know, of having a, a second table that we set up in the living room at holiday meal time because we need to accommodate people who are coming in. And sometimes what happens is you don't get to enjoy the meal with the person who's in the other room at a different table, but you know you're all celebrating together. And, uh, and so we're, we're continuing to pray through as a church family, how do we continue to keep those, those bonds connected? Things like the Memorial Day uh, camping trip and... Um, and doing all one service things like uh, like Christmas Eve are important times because those are some times where we'll all be together as a family jam-packed around this table. Um, with that, uh, we just have some exciting things happening. One of the things that we started off with was at the 9 o'clock hour is where we offer our full-blown children's ministry. Uh, we believe firmly as a church that we want our children in here worshiping with us, and that means singing. That means being a part of the reading of Scripture. That means a part of communion and all of that. Um, however, most Sundays, three Sundays out of the month, we also dismiss them partway through for a special kids ministry. Well, we're excited to say that in January, uh, we've been able to um, to push forward and we're opening up children's ministry at 9 o'clock and 1045. Um, so yeah, that's huge. That's a lot of work that's gone into that. Um, but there's like an asterisk to that. Okay, So you have to go to the bottom of the page and see what the asterisk is. Here, here, here's what it is. In getting two services prepped, all kinds of people have been added to the team to just accomplish and to do what we're doing with our worship services, with our follow-up ministry, with community groups, and all of that. And so with that opening that we are doing children's ministry in the 1045 hour starting in, in 2013, we also need more children's workers. We can accomplish it right now in the short term. But as we grow, as we continue to minister and meet with new people and rope new people into the family, we need more workers. So Gria, stand up really quick, right where you are. This is Gria. Come and find him. Come and talk to him. He would love to chat with you. Um, there's literally places to be in children's ministry, even if you don't like children that much. I know that most people like children, but they're, they're like me with cats. I like my own cat. I don't like tons of cats. Okay. And even if that's you, there are support roles. Kids are like, who wouldn't love us? Right. I mean, come on. But there are just so many different ways and roles uh, to, to, to be involved in that. So go and talk to Gria. Um, Kel's going to come on up right now. Kel's one of our elders and, um, uh, we've just asked him to give kind of a family update. It's near the end of the year, and uh, we just want to be really open with our finances and whatnot, and Kel's going to help share with some of that. Is this on? Here we go. Gosh, I'm going to have to return the cat I got for Dave and his family <laughs> <laughs> for Christmas. Uh, 
Let's see. Uh, looking around, I think I know most of you, but I see some faces that I don't know. So first, uh, let me introduce myself. First and foremost, believer in Jesus, follower of Jesus. Secondly, I've been blessed to be a husband and a father. And uh, thirdly, there's some ways that I serve um, here in the church. So it's in that capacity. Well, I guess all capacities that I'm here right now. And I wanted to take a couple minutes here just to speak about gifts. And children might get wide-eyed right now, right? Um, like, ooh, gifts, time for gifts. But the biggest thing that I wanted to say is, you know when you, when you give a gift? I'm, I'm going to talk to some of the children here. When you give a gift, aren't you sometimes excited about when the person opens it and what their, what their response is going to be and things like that? Are they going to like it? Are they not going to like it? Well, just take that whole anticipation and think about what it was like when God gave us Jesus and what was our response to the gift that we were given. Sometimes you get a gift and you're like, wow, you know, this is great. I never anticipated this. I never thought about this. You, never, you shouldn't have, you know, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes you open it up and you're like, Socks, more socks, and things. So I just want us to think about the gift, you know, like what your response is to the gift that we've been given and the anticipation that God had. And he, you know, I'm going to give my children this gift. And what's your response? Now, sometimes I have a difficult time taking that gift and doing what I'm supposed to be doing as a husband and father with that and leading my home and stuff. So, and sometimes it's hard within the Bible, you know, all those these, thou's, thus, that's and stuff to understand, well, you've also been given a gift through, um, and I'll go back to Gria, they found this great way to make that more accessible to you, the, the, the Bible to you. And you guys have, um, each family has um, one of these that takes the Bible and makes it easier to understand. And this is for your parents to read to you. We use this in Sunday school to read to you. You guys might recognize that. And then you also have this thing which is a, a tool to use for your parents your, so that they can teach you at home. And it's really, really, really great. And a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was just last week, some of us were talking about this, and even some of the parents were learning some stuff um, going through this. So it was really, really cool. So that gift that you've been given in Jesus and his, his word and things, now it's just that much easier to get a hold of and things. We've also been given a gift a while back in sustaining the body here and sustaining the ministry here. Uh, I gave an update, I think it was, I don't know, four or five months ago to say things are positive, things are looking good. You know, um, a couple years ago we were hesitant as to what was going to happen. Well, um, from a finance perspective, uh, we will end this year ahead of our budget. So that's generosity that pours through you. Yep. We're going to end this year likely about the same as we ended last year, about the same amount. So we ended last year ahead of budget by about fifteen dollars to $20,000. This year we're spending more, and we're going to be ahead of budget. So that's good. Um, yeah, yeah, very, very good. And so what that's doing for us who pay attention to this kind of stuff in greater degree <laughs> uh, is we're able to now look further out. We're not having to worry about uh, you know, next year you know, next quarter, those kind of things. And we're starting to plan three to five years out, which is really, really exciting because then we don't just take what we did last year and say we're going to do more of the same. We can really look further out and say, okay, what, you know, what, what's our place here and what are we doing here? Um, so that's, that's just the quick uh, snapshot update. The last thing I wanted to say about gifts is, and Ben and Dave, you guys go like this, but it's never really a secret because it comes around every time this year. <laughs> Right, is some people uh, amongst the body like to give a special gift to the staff this time of year. So if you'd like to do that, I think these are floating around somewhere around here, but since I haven't seen them in earnest, I'm just going to uh, say if you want to make a special staff gift, uh, just make sure in the memo of a uh, check or if it's a cash gift, just put it in an envelope with big letters that just say staff gift. And those are certainly, I can imagine, appreciated. They have been in years past. Uh, so, and you can just drop those in the uh, offering basket uh, if that's what you uh, feel moved to do. Uh, I think I'm done. All right, I need Olivia and Lisa to come on up. We've been doing an, an Advent reading just leading up to the Christmas season, and uh, and this is this is week three as we're growing closer and closer. So, um, Olivia is going to read. In the sixth month. 
Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, (laughs) Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was a barren, but she has conceived a son and and is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you said about me come true. And then... The angel left her. All right. Uh, Well, listen, it's my privilege. Tim, why don't you come on up? We've been using this family metaphor, and I was thinking about Tim uh, and how to introduce him. Tim's a guy that I met uh, several years ago. We began doing some different ministry. But more than that, we've just been brothers in Christ, and we both affirm that when we get together, there's no planning or prep. We get to just come together (laughs) and encourage one another and challenge one another. I always love to find out what Tim is doing. He's a texter, so he'll text me in the middle of nowhere and say, we've got a new brother or sister in Christ, which is always fun to, to hear. And I want you to think of Tim. I'm introducing this morning as Uncle Tim because many of you are about to go have meals and celebrate with people you don't really know, but they're part of your extended family. And they don't have the same exact cultural things as your family, your immediate family, but they still add context and layer to what your family's really about. And I want you to know Tim's off doing ministry in all parts of the Bay Area, which I'm sure he's going to get into a little bit here, but he's Uncle Tim, and he's part of our family. He's coming in as an extended family, and I'm so encouraged to hear as he ties in kind of season of share what's on his heart to share. So why don't you give a warm welcome to, to Tim here. Good morning, guys. How are you all doing? Some of you were here last year. Dave had me come, and I just shared my story with you guys. And I'm not going to do that because I want to preach God's word. But I do, I'll give you a really quick update on who I am. I was born in 1980, don't judge me, and then by the time I was 11 months old, my parents had already split. When I was three and a half years of age, my mom kidnapped me. I was the second kid ever on a milk carton. My dad found me after 11 months, and when I was eight and a half, my mom died, made me a very angry kid. I was an atheist until I was the age of 20. I actually talked Christians out of their faith. I talked a lot of different faiths out of their faith, a lot of different people. And God got a hold of my heart when I was 20 years of age, and I won't go into that too much, but so I'm an ex-atheist who was good at it, who's in love with Jesus, and want to share that with you this morning. So are you guys ready for that? So I need you all to talk back, because if you talk back, we get out of here quicker, because I'll talk faster, amen? All right. I'm married to uh, my best friend, Aaron. I have three beautiful daughters, Reagan, Lorelai, and Evangeline, uh, five, uh, three, and 15 months, and I am a pastor at a church called Trinity. I'm also really who I am as an evangelist who shares with others the good news of what Christ has done in my life and what he's done for mankind. And I lead this ministry called Compelled. I would assume that you've seen that this morning based on this. I lead this ministry called Compelled. I'm sure they've, Dave's talked a little bit about what we're going to be doing, but we're going to be at Bernal Church in, in about three weeks, and we're going to be doing a six-week training. And in these six weeks, we're going to help equip you and encourage you. Compelled's actual mission statement is to train the church at large or equip followers of Christ to share their faith in an intentional, relational, and relatable way. 
in their sphere of influence. We have six weeks. It'll be two hours. If you come, you will get a break. I promise I won't just talk for two hours. You will get an opportunity to meet with people from other churches and connect with them and do some role-playing type things. And you will learn not just how to share your faith, but theology on evangelism. And it should be a really good time. And so Dave basically asked me to come here to advertise and to encourage and to ask you guys to come be a part of it. I love the city. I signed up a few days ago, and it's just so cool how you guys are just constantly in communication throughout the week. And so you can sign up on the city. We do six trainings. I'm going to go through them really quick. First one, gospelizing Christians. If you've never heard that term, that means to share your faith with other believers, to actually have spiritual conversations. Because if you can't have a spiritual conversation with a believer, how will you ever have one with a non-believer? And also, Christ told us to go and make disciples, not just converts. And so the goal is to help us kind of understand what it means to reach somebody and to actually pour into their life and love on them. Then we talk about intentionality, what it means to be intentional, not in just what you say, but in your entire life, like what you post online, how you dress, how you actually uh, pray, things like that, and just to really be intentional throughout your life because we're here on purpose. And then we talk about relational evangelism. My whole life has basically been, hey, I want to sit across the table with you and answer questions that you may have about Christ. And I want to teach you about God, and I want to encourage you through God's scriptures. And I believe that there's no question that should stand between you and God. So we talk about relational evangelism. We talk about the relatable gospel. If I share the gospel with you and you don't understand it, I didn't really share it with you. And so how can you relate a Starbucks cup to our God and Savior? You know, and so all these different ways to relate the gospel to all things. And then apologetics. The goal is not to just give you information so you can be Rambo and you can be like, look, look what I believe and just murder people with information. That's not the goal. But it's to help us understand that our belief We don't have to check our mind at the door to trust Jesus. Amen? And so then the last two, which are very special to me, because I was an atheist, we help help all of you, if you will come, to encourage and to actually love on people that are atheists, maybe agnostics or seekers, and to recognize the difference and figure out where people are at. So once you recognize where they are, you know how to speak to them. And then the last week, we talk about how to encourage and love on those that are of other faiths and teach them about the God that we have without just being preachy and, and, let's just be really honest, annoying sometimes. Because evangelism, unfortunately, in our day and age has become somewhat of a bad word. So about two weeks ago, I got to go on a cruise with just my wife. I have three daughters. I got to go for seven days. We went to Jamaica. We went to the Cayman Islands, and we went to Cozumel. And when people asked me, Dave asked me the other day, so how was it? I said, let me explain it this way. For two hours, we took a nap every day. And you parents are laughing because you're like, what? Every day I got to read a book and read through. I actually read seven books throughout the week. It was just a phenomenal time. But how many of you have ever been on a cruise? Anyone? A good chunk of you. If you guys aren't really familiar with cruises, when you go, before they actually set sail, they make you do this thing called a mustard drill. And back in the day, they would make you put on a life jacket, and you'd have to waddle down because everyone had their life jackets, and you'd go to the side of the boat, and then they'd put you in these lines and check you off, and then explain to you what would happen in case the boat were to sink, how to have your life jacket on, how to use the whistle, how to jump onto the lifeboat. And it's kind of similar, you know, even if you haven't been on a cruise, if you've been on a flight where they start to explain how to put on your belt before you fly away, how to get the oxygen mask and put it on yourself before you put it on your child, all that kind of stuff that we check out and don't really listen to. And so I'm on my phone because this is the last moment for seven days that I'm not going to have to pay $6,000 per second for Facebook and so because they charge you a lot of money on the boat. And so I'm playing on my phone and I start to look around and I notice that no one is paying attention to these people as they describe to you what a mustard drill is and what would happen in case the boat started to sink. And I thought about that, I thought, wow, that's unfortunately a really good illustration for some of us when it comes to church. We decide to come to church, and we go, all right, we're going to put in our time, we're going we're to do our two hours on a Sunday, and we're going to spend time there, and, and we're just going to kind of check out, and we're going to listen to the scriptures, but then we're going to think about what's, you know, what's for food later, and, and maybe who's playing tonight, and that kind of stuff, and we check out just in the hopes that we can put in our time and then go have fun the rest of the week. And that started to convict me. It started to make me realize that even sometimes when I'm in church, I will not be giving God the glory that he deserves. And so I'm going to just pray before we jump into the text, because I think we need to invite God to do what God's going to do in this time. And so in reverence, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? 
Father, I am so grateful to be here. I'm humbled to be able to speak to this group of people that, that you have specifically put Dave and Ben in charge of. God, thank you so much for their hearts. Thank you so much for Dave and Ben and, and the staff and all the people that are here serving to make it so your word can be proclaimed. God, we're going to open up texts that many of us may be familiar with. God, would you speak afresh into our hearts? Would you encourage us, even in a, in a scripture that maybe we all know, God, would you teach something to us that we've never heard before? Lord, would we be encouraged that you're on the throne? Would we be encouraged that you're God and that we're not because we would not do a good job of it? Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for your text. In your precious name, amen. We're going to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're going to start. Then we're going to jump to 1 Corinthians 15, just so you guys are ready. There's Bibles in front of you. They're ESV. I'm using NIV 84 because I'm old school. So it sounds similar, um, but if you have a Bible app and you want to actually read exactly what I'm reading, I'm using NIV 84. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Paul writes, Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, and before he even says that, the context is he's describing to this church, hey, you guys could pay me, but I've decided not to take money from you. He was a tent maker. He was getting paid from other churches. He's decided so no one at that church could question his devotion to the gospel. But then he describes that he is compelled to preach the gospel, and he can't boast, and woe to him if he doesn't. And this word compelled for a lot of us, unfortunately in America, we kind of think of, oh, compelled, we think, oh, well, I'm compelled to overeat. I'm compelled to maybe drink too much. I'm compelled to sleep in an extra hour, amen? And so there are these things that we get compelled to do, but that is not the compulsion that Paul is talking about. When he talks about compelled to preach the gospel, it's not a, we feel like we really want to, it's a must. It's this idea that you must do something, just like we are all compelled to breathe. We are all compelled to put one foot in front of the other as we try to get to a destination. Paul was compelled to preach the gospel. And so I'm going to ask somewhat of a question in your notes. If you just want to write this in the corner, that's fine, and you can try to answer it right now. Or maybe you spend some quiet time this week wrestling with this question, but what is the thing in your life that you are compelled to do? What compels you? What are we compelled to do? What is the thing for you that you just consistently feel like you must do? Not that you just want to, but you must do. We're going to talk about the gospel today. And the gospel translates to good news. And if I asked, if I took a poll of every single one of you and I sat down with every single one of you at Pete's, not Starbucks because Pete's is holier, and we were hanging out and having a conversation and we were talking about what the good news is, Every single one of you would probably tell me a little, little bit different. Not that you'd be wrong, but we'd all describe it a little bit differently. And unfortunately, in our churches, sometimes the good news becomes something to the effect of, well, because I'm a good person, God blesses me, and we think the good news is God's blessings. For some of us, it's our moral record. It's based on what we do, and when we are good, God has to bless us, and he starts to have to do things for us. And unfortunately, there's this skewed view of what good news is. This past week, I had a great week just kind of settling down from the cruise, and get, I got to have lunch with Dave and got to just kind of hang with people that I love, and, and then Friday happens. And it's really hard to imagine that there is good news on this earth when something so tragic, so terrible happens. And yet, God will be, and I promise you this, because the scripture teaches this, that he will be glorified even in a situation like this. Don't worry about it. Know that God is bigger than even this tragedy. Know that he is bigger than even the death of of young children. Our God is good and he's powerful and he loves us. And in the midst of all of this, he will still be glorified. Amen? There's a pop culture version of Christianity that unfortunately has infiltrated many churches and many Christians. It's this idea that, you know, as long as I have fun, as long as I come and I get fed, as long as the worship was good, and as long as I'm a good person, then everything's good with me and God. But as soon as I do something bad, God's upset with me and he may smite me with a lightning bolt. And that's not true. And let me be very clear, I don't mean to offend, maybe I do. There are better people than you that have had harder lives. 
And there are way worse people based on the world standards that have had much better lives according to the world standards. I'm so glad that God doesn't grade on this curve. I'm so glad that God doesn't have a ledger because he sent his son to do what none of us could do for ourselves. He came to die in our place so we could have a relationship with God. And so we're going to really unpack what this good news is. I sat down. I, I did insurance for 11 years. So last month, I decided to quit. That's its own story in itself. But I decided to become a full-time pastor, a full-time missionary, and just tell others about Jesus. But about a year ago, I had to sit down with my district manager. And I was so frustrated because I was in the midst of just meeting constantly with people, telling them about the Lord. And then I get this email, and it's like, you have to meet with me for this hour. And I'm like, an hour? I want to talk to people about Jesus. And so I show up to his office, and for 10 minutes, we talk about insurance. And then we were done. And I was like, oh, sweet, now I can go talk to someone else about Jesus. And I went to go grab my stuff, and he goes, so, Tim, how's that church thing? And I was like, whoa. He just, he just gave me an opportunity. And so I was about to open my mouth. I was about to tell him about the hope that I had. I was so excited. He asked a question. And before I said anything, he said, because I believe. And I was like, whoa. He's going to tell me exactly what he believes right now. And he started to explain to me that he believes that he's a good person in comparison probably to Hitler. And he's a good person. And so because of that, that good things happen to him. But whenever he messes up, whenever something bad, whenever he does something bad, it seems that, that the higher power or God or whatever he thinks it is, unfortunately allows bad things to happen to him. And, and you guys will learn this if you come to Compelled. I'm really big on leveraging the awkward pause. And so I sat there. And he was done with this, and he just looked at me, and I just sat there, and I didn't say anything. And he's like, so do you have anything to say? Do you have anything that you want to talk about? And I was like, well, I just have a question. And he goes, okay. How do you know anything you just said is true? And he thought about it, and he's like, well, I mean, when I, when I do good things, good things happen. And when I do bad things, bad things happen. Have you ever done anything good and a bad thing happened? Well, Yeah. Huh. So you just made that up. And he looked at me, and this is how guys are, ladies. You, you've seen us do this. Guys are competitive. So he was like, well, how do you know what you believe is true? <laughs> and I got to share with him the good news of who Christ is. And I got to explain it in a way that he could understand. I'm going to ask you two fundamental questions right now and at the end of the message. And you can write them down. You can think about them. You can talk with God while I'm speaking. That's fine if you want to pray. I need prayer. But if you want to pray while I'm talking, that's fine. Two fundamental questions. First, what is the gospel? What is the gospel to you? What is the good news to you? What is the good news that God has done? What, what has he done for you? What is this good news? And the second question is, based on what you believe the good news is, what is my response? What is my response to this good news? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes, still writing to the church in Corinth. He writes this. He says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. We have 10 points. You've already seen them. I know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a church guy too. Like I walk in and go, how many points? Oh, this is going to be a while. There's 10 points. And we're going to not rapid fire go through them, but we're going to fill out these 10 in the next 20 minutes. And so here we go. Number one, Paul was actually sharing the gospel, reminding the gospel with, to Christians. He was sharing the gospel with Christians. You can fill that in. There's that term gospelizing I'm, I'm not trying to make it a word, like it, it doesn't exist, but it's this idea to share the gospel with others. You're actually gospelizing. He was doing it with Christians. Christians, we need to be reminded of the gospel. We really do. Because we will spend a lot of time talking about secondary issues. We'll spend a lot of time worrying about things that are not that important. And we must remind Christians of the gospel. Number two, the gospel must be received. The gospel must be received. The gospel's out there. I mean, we preach it, we tell others, we share it at Starbucks, more at Pete's, and we tell people about the Lord, and yet it must be received, because if it's not received, it just hovers there and it doesn't do anything, because Jesus is Lord if you receive him or not, but is he your Lord? 
The gospel must be received. I love that Paul writes this. I love that he starts off with now brothers. He's reminding us that he's talking to Christians. He reminds them of the gospel in which they've received, on which they've taken their stand. And then he says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And I believe that it is by grace we're saved, not based on any actions that we do. But there is this evidence of our belief based on how we live because our belief dictates how we behave. And he says, if you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you, this term, hold firmly, in Greek, literally is the same, it's a nautical term. I just got off of a boat, a big boat, a cruise ship. As the cruise ship would come into a dock, it would take ropes off of the ship and then tie it to the dock. That's what he means when he says, hold firmly. It means that you're connected to, you're facing, you're all about that, and you're connected to this dock. That's what we must do with the gospel, because if we're connected to something else, If we're connected to creationism, but not to our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, we miss it. And I believe in creationism. Don't judge me. I do, based on what Jesus did. Not because I just take what the Bible says to be true, until I started to realize that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. And when that happened, that changed everything. That made it so there was an actual possibility that God could exist. And so, if we do not hold firmly to this gospel, we'll miss it. He goes on, verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Here's the interesting thing. When Paul says this, the New Testament hasn't been written. He's talking about the Old Testament when he says the Scriptures. He's talking about Isaiah 53, where Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born to Mary, talked about what what the Messiah would be like, talking about in Psalms 22 about crucifixion, 700 years before anyone really thought of, hey, we should crucify someone. 1,500 years before Jesus walked among us, born of Mary. So he says this, and here's the third point, the gospel should be passed on. The gospel should be passed on. It's cool that I, I really think this is neat because when I was a kid, when I was given some type of gift, I wanted to keep it to myself. And the gospel is the one gift that when you share it with others, it gets better. The gospel should be passed on. Number four, the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. Like I said before, if we're starting to to sink in, or we're starting to spend time connected to anything but the gospel, we're going to miss it. The gospel is of first importance. Because if I convince you that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and then took a nap on the seventh, that doesn't change your eternity. We need to make the main thing the main thing, and the gospel is of first importance. It's not the only thing. I'm, I'm really big into theology. I'm really big into wrestling with these ideas and, and, and the essence of God. But if we start to worry more about it, if we have... You know, if we were predestined or if we were given free will and we start to get away from the gospel, we'll miss it. I keep saying that to remind you that that's important. Because Paul consistently reminded us that the gospel was the point. Number five. When we think of Jesus, we think of him as the great shepherd. We think of him as all these different jobs in the church. And one of the jobs, if not the main job that Jesus had was he was a missionary. He came from heaven and he came into our earth. He came to where we are. He came into our history. And Jesus' purpose when he came to earth was to die for your sin. That's why he came. He loved you enough to say, hey, I know you can't do it for yourself. So I will do it for you. I will make a way. I will die because your sin created a chasm between you and the Father. And so Jesus came to die for your sin. Don't make any mistake. Jesus didn't come. Our faith is not just built on what Jesus taught. He came to die in your place. And when he did that, he made a way for you to have a relationship with him. Number six, and we're going to be here for a little while. Number six, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. I I told you guys somewhat quickly, hey, I was an atheist and then I came to know the Lord and it wasn't because of some cool song or some charismatic preacher. It was because I started to study history and I started to realize that Jesus rose from the dead and when I realized he rose from the dead, unfortunately my response was, damn. Because when I found out that he rose from the dead, that means that God could exist. That means that what he says in this could be true. 
that means that I, if he is who he claims he is, I need to be accountable to him. The resurrection changes everything. It was this verse that wrecked my eternity that I started to study and try to disprove the resurrection, obviously failed at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And I thought, man, if you're going to make up a doctrine, if you're going to make up a book to try to get people to act a certain way, to believe in something, you're probably not going to give them a way out in the scripture. Well, just disprove the resurrection. Come on, do it. It was kind of like Neo in the Matrix when him and Morpheus were fighting and he flipped and then he stopped and he's like, come on. That's what we see with the resurrection. We see Jesus saying, hey, if you're going to try to disprove anything, disprove the point. And if you, if you don't believe, if you don't know the Lord, if you haven't started a relationship with him and you have the willingness to search and to seek and to look into his resurrection, let us know when you want to get baptized. Number seven. Without the resurrection, nothing has changed. Without the resurrection, nothing has changed. I, the reason that we have this, this symbol of a tomb with the rock being moved and light coming out is to remind people that Jesus didn't just die, period. He died, comma, and rose on the third day. He's alive, and he's coming back one day, and so there's an urgency, there's an expectancy. That's why we tell others about him. We are not... The planning committee, we are the welcoming committee for when he comes back. And so I would encourage you to start to spend time looking at this resurrection and start to realize what a big deal it was because without the resurrection, nothing has changed. Paul goes on later on in 15 and he says, if Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins. And we might as well be pitied more than anyone because we are living this way, doing this placebo thing where we're hoping and singing songs and doing community, but it's all for nothing. If he didn't rise from the dead, this place might as well be a skate park because it's worthless. But if he rose from the dead, that changes everything. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 3. It'll be up here. We're just doing one text. And it's such a rich text. I could talk just on this verse forever. We're going to unpack it a little bit more in the compelled trainings, but I just want to give you guys some quick principles. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter was the apostle who... Before Jesus died on the cross, he started to deny him. He denied him three times and then left. Jesus died on the cross. And then 50 days later, he's preaching a sermon in front of thousands of Jews. And thousands upon thousands of Jews decided to change direction, to stop worshiping the way they were and start to worship this lonely carpenter from Nazareth as God. Something happened to Peter. And I believe that the thing that happened to Peter is what happens to all of us when we truly yield and we turn to Christ. He got the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in him started to work in him and through him because none of us are a good enough preacher to see thousands come to know the Lord, and yet the Holy Spirit can do that. And he did do that. And so he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I think that last part, sometimes in evangelism, we miss that. We start to argue with people. We start to want to tell them what we believe. And unfortunately, most people in the world think, when they think of Christians, if they, don't, they haven't had the veil lifted from their eyes, if they don't have a relationship with God, they think more about what Christians are against than what they're for. And so we should do this with gentleness and respect. A couple of principles. Number eight, Jesus must be Lord of your life. I put your, that's the one that you write in, your life. Because Jesus is Lord if you believe in him or not. But he must be Lord of your life. And let me be very, very honest about this. If you don't have a real relationship with God, if, you, if you've kind of turned, like, man, I love Christianity, but I'm not really sure about that whole devotion to Christ thing. If he has not become Lord of your life, don't go tell others about him. Because you don't know what you're talking about. If you go and you work at Chevy and you're trying to sell Chevys, but you drive a Ford, there's something wrong with you. I don't want to buy from you. And Jesus, if he is your Lord, you can share with others firsthand experience of what God's done. I'm an apologist. I love apologetics. I love having answers. But God has made it very clear to me that it's not just about annihilating people with information. It's about being prepared with an answer 
when people actually ask questions. A lot of times we answer questions no one's asking. Someone asks where the bathroom is, and we tell them the attributes of hell. Sometimes we just miss it. Sometimes we just are not there. So Jesus must be Lord of your life, because then you can explain him from firsthand experience. My pastor at Trinity says, Tim, I love apologetics, but you know why I know Jesus is real? Because I met with him this morning. And we need to be reminded that we can personally meet with our God whenever we'd like. Number nine, as, Paul, as Peter is saying this, he says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Number nine, it's kind of a duh, but it's one of the things that I unpack in our six weeks. In order to give an answer, you first must be asked a what? Question. You first must be asked a question. Hey, nice to meet you. So Jesus, what? <laughs> Someone sneezes, you're like, God bless you. So about God. And we're trying to come up with all of these ways to share our faith, and it's become a little awkward. And when I look at Scripture, I see, man, be prepared with an answer. I'm going to tell you guys what the six weeks is about. Now you don't even need to go. Actually, this might make you want to come. Compelled exists, really, to help you all live in such a way that people ask you about Jesus. I don't even bring him up anymore. People ask me about him. Hey, so, like, what's different about you? Jesus? No, I don't start with that, but... In order to give an answer, you first must be asked a question. My encouragement to you is we need to start to live in such a way that our faith, our, our trust in Christ, not belief as far as acknowledgement, but belief as, as far as trust and pledging allegiance to God is so attractive to the outside community that they see Christ in us and then they want to know more about it. That's what we attempt to do over six weeks, and we attempt to give you an answer for the hope that you have. Number 10. Oh, this is so true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope. If your hope is in your 401k, sucks for you. If your hope is in how much property you have, you there's no U-Haul behind a, uh, behind a hearse. You don't get to take your stuff with you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope because it's not just here and now, it's eternal. And so I would encourage you to start to look into who Christ is, to look into the good news. I asked you that question previously. What is the gospel? I believe that it's that God loved us enough that he knew that there was a sin issue. We had decided to take Jesus off of the throne of where he deserved. We decided not to listen to what God had to say. And we created a chasm between him and I, and you and him. And when we did this, we made it so there was no way that we could work our way to God. We want to. We want to do enough good stuff. But there's nothing that we can do to make our way to God on our own. And so God, being who God is, being loving and merciful, made a way personally for us, and he sent Jesus. And when Jesus walked among us, it wasn't just about what he taught. It was about the fact that he was going to die in our place. I believe that his death on the cross for our sin was saying, hey, your debt is paid in full. But his resurrection from the dead on the third day was your receipt showing you that it had been paid in full. And when you trust him with your life, I wish I could say, oh, I trusted. My life's been perfect ever since. I'll be honest, it got a little harder. Jesus says to die to yourself every day. It's a death sentence to follow Jesus. But you're given a new life. You're made a new creation. And because of his resurrection, because he is who he claimed that he was, I can trust what he has to say. Every single one of us has a word. If you know each other in this place, you know that like, if you go, hey, let's go grab lunch, you know if that person's probably going to be early, going to be on time, or going to be late. How do you know? Based on the past. Based on what you've seen in the past. And so every person has a word, and this is called God's word. And based on God's past performance, we can trust in his future promises. And I believe that we can trust Jesus with our entire lives. But what about telling others about him? Because I believe the point and the purpose of our relation, the whole reason we exist is to know God, to glorify him, to know him intimately. But if that was the only point, God would have taken you all that know him. He wants to make himself known through you. And so in Romans 10, verse 14, this is something we, I call it the Romans 10, 14 tension that we talk about throughout the six weeks. It says this, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they, whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? 
I read this text and I explain this text because some of us just think we've got to go tell everyone. My wife and I were at dinner and she asked me, Tim, you can pretty much talk to anyone. You're extroverted. You know how to connect with people. Why don't you just tell everyone you come in contact with about Jesus? And I said, because I'd never eat. And there are times where God has predestined a specific conversation for you and that person to have. But you all have neighbors. You all have people that you work with. Let me, let me let you in on a secret. That's not by accident. God puts you there on purpose, not to just make a lot of money, but to actually be able to speak into their lives. There are people on your campuses that you know personally because you can and should be able to speak into their lives, but you have to build authority. You have to get to know them, not, hey, nice to meet you, so Jesus. And so we try to help you come be able to live in such a way that they'll ask you questions, but also give them an answer for the hope that you have. So what is the gospel? That was the question. And what is your response? I'm going to ask the band to come up. What is the gospel and what is your response? Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 9. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Christians, if we're really honest, some of us don't even realize we were saved from a terrible, terrible thing called hell. And we don't like to talk about hell. We think God's evil for for creating hell, and I don't think he created hell. I think he allowed hell to exist because he was giving us the choice to accept or reject him. And our God is so good that if we want him, we get what our heart desires. And if we don't want him, we get what our heart desires. God made it, so whatever we choose, we get. And we will spend time in the church. We'll say things like, I've been a Christian my whole life. There are no grandchildren in the faith, and you do not get saved by DNA. When you start a relationship with God, it's based on you. You must be the one who trusts him. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love that he said your heart. Often that uh, that gets moved around in translation to your soul. Because you cannot fake out your heart. You can fake out your mind. You can fake out a lot of things, but you cannot fake out your heart. John 1, 12 through 13, you have to alter who... Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. No one can make the decision for you. You must make the decision yourself. And I would assume, because I go to a lot of different places, that there are people, even in this room, even on this day, that have said that they love Jesus, they've come and they've served, they've done all the things that they think they're supposed to do, and yet sometimes we just miss the grace that God's given us through his death and resurrection. And so it's way easier than we think. We just have to yield our will. We need to turn from our sin and turn to him, and then ask him to lead us. Because I can't white-knuckle Christianity. I'm not good at that. I can't turn from, from my sin and then continuously be away from my sin without the Father's help. Back in 1830, George Wilson was convicted of robbing the U.S. mail, and was sentenced to be hanged. President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for Wilson, but he refused to accept it. The matter went to Chief Justice Marshall, who concluded that Wilson would have been executed, or would have to be executed. A pardon is a slip of paper, wrote Marshall, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon at all. George Wilson must be hanged. For some, the pardon comes too late. For others, the pardon is just not accepted. And Jesus did not come and die and rise again so you could just live a holy, righteous life in your own mind. He came and did what he did so you could have an intimate relationship with the Father through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so I'm going to ask you guys to do something that may be awkward for some of you, and I don't care. Would you just lower your heads and close your eyes? And I just want you to do some business with God. We just covered a lot of stuff. We just talked about a lot of different things. And there's probably something that's kind of just messing with you right now. You feel, you're just not really sure what it is. And on June 13th of 2001, I sat in a church service while a good friend of mine was leading worship. But he wasn't a friend of mine at the time. And this beautiful girl was singing next to him, who I eventually ended up marrying. And they were singing this song. And in the middle of the song, I felt incredibly warm. And I felt like God put his arm around me. And I I had so many arguments, but God removed any of those arguments. And he said, Tim, just follow me. And I believe that some of you right now in this instance, in this moment, 
or having a moment similar to that. Maybe you don't have all your questions answered, but you're starting to realize it doesn't matter. Maybe you've been doing it your own way, and you've realized that you need to trust Jesus with all of you. You've given him some, but not all. So in this moment, in this time, I just want you to do some work with God. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. There's nothing overly spiritual about it. The prayer doesn't save you. It's the, it's the purpose of the prayer, the yielding of your will. Prayer goes something like this. God, thank you so much that you would send your son, Jesus, to die on a cross for me. Lord, from this day forward, I intend to turn from sin and turn to you. God, thank you so much that you raised Jesus from the dead, that I don't have to check my mind at the door, but there is evidence in history that you are who you say you are. Father, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for loving me the way that you do. With everyone's eyes closed, everyone's heads bowed, this is not an embarrassing thing. Maybe you've spent a lot of time in this church and you've never truly trusted him, and I don't want to leave this place without knowing that you've decided to follow him if you're close, if God wants to rescue you. So in this moment, if you decided to pray that prayer, with everyone's heads bowed and everyone's eyes closed, would you just simply raise your left hand for me? Would you just simply raise your left hand for me? All right, any others? All right, you can put your hands down. For some of you, you've just fallen away from the Lord. Some of you have just moved from him. And the great thing about our God is as soon as we turn back, he's right there to meet us. We're going to take communion right after this. And I would ask that if your heart is not right with God, that you would take this moment to get it right with God because you should not come to the table unless you and God, you and your brother, you and others are good. And so if you feel disconnected from God, I'm just going to pray for you. Father, I just thank you that you are there to meet us wherever we are. We thank you so much for being who you say you are, God. Would you encourage us and give us the grace and faith to follow you every day of our life? Love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In front of you, there are these cards. You can grab one of these. If you've decided to make a decision for Christ, I would encourage you to check off a box, put your name on it, give it to the leadership, because Christianity is a team sport. We get to walk with you and encourage you. If you're just hurting, you've got all these different opportunities to check a box. And this church is a praying church. I know that for a fact. And so I would ask you to respond to what God has said to you today. Thanks, Tim. We're just going to continue in worship right now in a couple of ways. Uh, one of the responses we have uh, on a weekly basis is the opportunity to, to give. And Kel described it well. It's really a gift to the Lord. Uh, and just now as we sing, we're going to be um, taking up our offering but in addition to that, we're going to be singing the lyrics to a song called I Confess. And uh, some, of the, some of the verses that every church ought to be very familiar with, and part of the beauty of coming together as a body of believers is to come uh, and as we prep our hearts for communion, which will be in just a few moments, um, to know and understand some basic truths. And let me just read, read this for you. Some of, some of you may be doing this for the very first time. Some of you may, may be... Uh, used to this because this is the regular practice of a Christian. But First John one eight says this, or one seven it says, "But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us." from all unrighteousness before we take communion and even as we're bringing our tithes and offering we want to do this and not as tim said trick our soul and just go through some religious ordinance uh, in hopes that that will somehow appease god rather we want our actions of giving offering of taking communion to reflect what our hearts and our